Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Shane Trotter, author of the new book, Setting the Bar, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Era of Distraction, Dependence, and Entitlement. Shane is a writer, a high school educator, a strength and conditioning coach in Texas. Shane, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, I'm so excited about this conversation today. I, I read your article in Quillette a few months back and was really intrigued. And since then, I know we've been talking. Uh, but before we get into uh, your, your book and the ideas you're working with, tell us a bit about your background. I know you've, you've been a teacher. You're, you're also doing something with strength and conditioning. Um, walk us through kind of your journey and how that helped you get to the point where you decided to write a book. I've been a teacher and I loved education. So, you know, um, I, it's, it's probably best to kind of explain that transition uh, because that's telling in itself. So my father was a uh, medical doctor uh, who turned uh, philosophy professor. So I kind of had that, that kind of broad background and, and, you know, grew up surrounded by books and loved learning. And I wanted to be the greatest teacher that I'd ever lived. Then uh, I got to teaching and got hired at what is you know, known as a destination district. It's a, you know, supposed to be a very good school. And I really did love it. It's like the fountain of youth working with kids, you know, it, it, a lot of fun interactions. And you know, I, I would make songs to teach history lessons. And, and I really loved it. But I was, I was also somewhat disturbed by how low the bar had been uh, dropped to. Uh, so the, uh, from there, you know, I did a few years of, of teaching, uh, you know, everything from AP government to world history to U.S. history. But I, I, I gradually wanted to just explore other places where I could push kids. So that, that's how I transitioned into a, a new role as a strength and conditioning coordinator on campus. I started to accumulate uh, certifications, and then uh, that opened up the opportunity to, to just be a strength and conditioning coordinator, um, which in a weird way opened up the opportunity for me to uh, start doing a lot more writing which is uh, kind of brought me back into philosophy and uh, you know, a lot of other study. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm looking at ways to fuse the two, uh, trying to, to create a, a, a series of, of or a, a program uh, that, that I can kind of pitch to districts. So um, it's coming full circle, I hope. <laughs> that's, a, that's fascinating. And there's, there's probably a, this, I think this is probably a conversation for another day, but there's a I think there's something really interesting there about the fact that teaching is such an all-consuming job in and of itself that it's, I think there's oftentimes where teachers feel like they could do something else, but they just don't have the time. And yet that then a, but then a job change suddenly shifts and it's not that the new job is somehow less important or less complicated, but when it's not teaching, it feels like there's so much more time and suddenly it's like, oh, wow, I could do this and that and the other thing. And while still doing really a really great job in the new new role. Absolutely true. I could not have written my book as well if I'd been in the classroom full time, even though it, it is a very academic mindset I approach. You, know, it, you can't read my book without realizing that I fervently believe in education and what it should be. And I'm I'm very passionate about trying to drive it in the right direction. You know, that's is the, is the lens I see the world in. And yet I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the mental calories uh, to, 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 to devote in that direction otherwise. So yes, exactly. Um, mental calories. Love that phrase. <laughs> well, let's, let's shift over to talking about your book. 
Because I, I reached out initially after reading your essay on Quillette entitled Remedial Education for All. We'll link in the show notes for anybody that wants to see that. And I got to the bottom of the, the essay, and I think it's an adaptation of your first chapter, if I remember correctly. Is that is that right, or am I misremembering that? It's not. No, no, sir. That was just, uh, yeah. So I have I have not done excerpts yet. I'm actually uh, working on, on, on releasing those soon. Oh, okay. Well, scratch that. I read that <laughs> saw that you had a book about this coming out. It was really intriguing. Uh, so uh, you argued in that essay that schools are really focusing too much attention on their lowest performing students. Walk us through that and help us see why is that a problem? The incentives in schools um, are such that we focus most of our attention on the lowest achieving. The best way to approach is probably start with the the school structure. Has, we've we've inflated grades in, by and large and uh, to an extreme degree in in public education. And there's been kind of a, 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 a what I find creepy trend where marketing has taken over. So we can create the impression that we're giving education to these smart kids, to the kids who have, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to compare and you cannot expect the same things from someone who grows up surrounded by books where uh, history, politics, uh, literature are conversations at the dinner table where there are dinner, dinner table conversations going on and, and meals at a dinner table. To compare that to, to, to kids who are raised on TV and, and, and are allowed to, to, you know, kind of just float by, you're going to see a completely different student. Um, it, you know, you can't compare the two. And the, and the two students need completely different things by the time they're six, seven, eight, nine, and certainly in high school. So, so that's one of the struggles in public education. Okay. And, and so there is, there's a finite amount of resources, a finite amount of attention, and you do have to, uh, to some degree or another, it, it can't be perfect. It can't be made for everyone. So, what we see a lot of in education and, and, and for years, uh, I don't know the exact specifics off the top of my head, but we've seen, for example, in colleges, uh, in 1960, the average college student studied for about 40 hours a week. Uh, in 1980, that dropped down to 27, I think. And it was as low as 12 in 2007. And at the same time, we've seen that the, uh, the average grade, the median grade uh, went up. So, you know, th th this is this is in college. Uh, you can see you can see this in Harvard. And of course, that's more the case in the uh, in the in the social sciences than, than the hard sciences, which hurts my heart even more <laughs> because I'm a social sciences guy. We're very good at marketing and uh, uh, creating the image of education. Um, but I think there's been a lost sense of the value in education. We don't value the education so much as what the education is supposed to give us. So we're trying to hand over metrics. Um, it it, it kind of goes back to that. I don't know if you're familiar with David McCullough's uh, You Are Not Special speech, but you know, it's this metric uh, obsessed society. So yes, with the student who has been raised in an academic environment, they're going to very easily meet all the metrics and appear to be, you know, achieving academic excellence. You don't have to worry about it as a school. You really don't. I would argue that those are the students who need the academic push the most because they're going to use academic when you, when you just boil it down to, to what does a student need in their life? All right, we should be giving them lessons that apply to their life. Well, they, those students are going to use academic 
their academic pursuits far more in their career and in their daily life. Schools, they don't have to worry about those students because it's all just what's on paper. You know, so, so there's two major driving forces. One is standardized chip testing. And to give you an idea of how we, we kind of manipulate outcomes, the Texas STAR test, I always reference uh, the biology exam for freshmen. We'll pat ourselves on the back about having a 95% passing grade on, you know, the Texas biology STAR uh, for our school. Okay. But w- what we don't tell people is that to pass, you need to get 18 out of 55 questions correct. So where is all your attention going? All your attention is going to the kids that didn't get 18 out of 55 questions correctly, um, co- are correct. The other part of this is then, is then the IEP and 504 world. And I, I'd be the first to tell you, uh, you, we do need a system for accommodating students with disabilities. I'm not arguing otherwise, but we also have to be very honest about what, is, what the, the current system as it is, is doing what it's doing to, stu- to, to the average teacher, what we're asking of, uh, of teachers, um, so that we can try to create a better uh, system, perhaps. The lack of honesty is, is, is the most troubling issue to me. And, uh, and so, so what we are seeing is there's students with disabilities. They, they have these IEPs and 504s. They're laundry lists of accommodations that teachers have to make that tend to become so overwhelming that the bar is lowered for every other student. Uh, to these standards, more or less, in comparison. So these are things that we need to we need to discuss if we're serious about giving our uh, our, our children and broad a better education. Well, those are some really interesting areas, and I think it's it's important. I think to recognize you've mentioned this a couple times. Um, your your goal is not to, you're not trying to say we should not provide a formal education to students with disabilities, or that we should not have these kind of accommodations. The question is one of how do we properly arrange a school so that the academics are first and for, first uh, in line in, in a priority list? And then how do we correctly set this up so that students are having real success rather than the appearance of success? Is that, is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of your, your thought there that uh, this is an issue of incentives. And I, I'm, I'm currently doing an economics fellowship with George Mason University. So that incentives word uh, left out at me. Uh, walk us through some of the incentives that exist, perhaps beyond the particular teacher and classroom relationship, but more on the school as a whole. What incentives exist to that help get help create the status quo and in the, in the problems that you're identifying? So when you look at schools right now, public schools, there, there, there's kind of an obsession on or a fear of losing students. It, it, it's become competitive, almost, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know, not like recruiting in any way, shape or form. There's no recruiting going on, but it's, it's become somewhat competitive, at least where I am. And there's this, this immense fear of charter schools or of you know, another school going open enrollment, students moving. There's a lot of, of comparison and uh, accommodation to the parent, I think, going on. Um, so it, it's creating these large marketing departments where we're, we're constantly trying to bring in new technologies and show that we have more this and more that, uh, but it's very superficial. I think it's unfortunately a consequence of the social media world we live in, that, that everything is clip, 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 uh, but, but, but the, the level, you can't show in a 30-second clip that this, this student has you know, f- phenomenal understanding of uh, you know, 
of, of logic and, and, and performs really well in a, in a Socratic dialogue and is, uh, you know, will steel man another person's argument. And, you know, it, you know, it, these things don't hit home with the average person. So it becomes very superficial. Another one I'll give you that I found fascinating lately. Um, and these are just laws that are going into place, but there's now a law and I'm, I don't know the specifics off the top of my head, uh, because I only heard about it uh, once and it was uh, like a month ago now, but basically the school gets less funding mm -hmm. if a certain amount of their total discipline is comprised of students with disabilities, IEPs or 504s. So the school is thereby incentivized to not discipline uh, student, students with disabilities. Um, and, and so, you know, teachers become frustrated that they're they're having a student that is consistently disruptive, sometimes just disturbingly so. Uh, you know, I could tell you stories that shocked you. And the student is, is sent back to class without any, without any discipline. And so it creates this situation uh, where it's very hard for, you know, at, at the base level, if you want the class to operate well uh, if, uh, and, and the students to learn, you, you want a teacher who's passionate and uh, in a good frame of mind. Uh, and, and, and so it gradually went, you know, it's kind of like, like the, the straw that broke the camel back or, you know, these things compound over time and it creates an environment uh, where that's far less de dedicated to learning than just getting by and hitting the metrics. But I think it's important to keep in mind, too, that your average classroom tends to run between 24 to, in some extreme cases, 40 students. So the students vastly outnumber the teacher. And in, a, in our current moment in 2021, there's a nationwide short, uh, shortage of teachers. So we've got teachers who are, in a best case scenario, love their subject matter, know their subject matter to a, to a high degree. They want to convey that to their students and help their students to gain that knowledge. But the, when you have those classroom disruptions, it becomes increasingly difficult and uh, I've seen this on a small scale. We, my school tends to do discipline pretty well, I think. So we, don't, we usually don't get there. But we've had some cases where we can see what happens when a teacher doesn't feel supported by administration. And they have those moments where the disciplined student is sent back to the classroom with seemingly no consequences. It becomes immensely frustrating and I think contributes to part of another teacher-wide problem. With, I mean, it is ridiculously hard to hang on to teachers past year five. I mean, teacher retention is an ongoing issue. And just for any uh, non-educators listening on the show, uh, there's a pretty obvious, I think, truism in the, in the teaching world that it takes really between one to three years to get really good at teaching. And when, once you are, if you can have the same classes for multiple years in a row, it's much easier to uh, have the workload of teaching diminish and you can put more time into relationships and positive behavioral connections and those kinds of things. But if you don't have that support that enables a teacher to get there and kind of see how teaching can be a better, more joyous experience, uh, teachers tend to quit. <laughs> and uh, that, and, and yeah. And it's a it's another truism, I suppose, that a bad teacher is better than a long term sub <laughs> for, for the kids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and, and we could probably talk all day on this issue, but I mean, th this is something that if we're serious about helping education, we have to address. And, and it is complex and there's a it needs so much help. But there's I think it was uh, 
Sir Ken Robinson, the, the late Sir Ken Robinson, the educational reformer said, um, there's, no, there's no school in America better than the quality of its teachers. And it's the obvious. From a public school perspective, a large district, I'm amazed at the amount of money that is pumped into all sorts of things, all sorts of things. But it could all go away, in my opinion, to, to bring in, if you wanted to make a school just unbelievable, none of that stuff is, is even comparable to just going out and trying, you know, putting all your effort into trying to bring the best teachers possible in. All right, and creating a system where they are incentivized to keep learning, to push each other, to learn from each other. Uh, there's, there's, there's no, nothing else. There's no iPad. There's no, no new app that's ever going to compare. Uh, you know, no cool screen you could bring into a classroom that could ever compare to having phenomenal teachers who are competitive, not competitive per se, but who are, are charged up and learning from each other. And so that's what you—that's <laughs> where our attention should be, um, more more than the flashy gizmos, I think. Well, so we have a situation where we have nationwide, we have I don't know how many thousands of schools and hundreds of thousands of educational professionals who are involved in trying to make school work. Uh, your book identifies a problem. Uh, and I, I, I think it's not really a problem of intentionality. It's not that I, I don't imagine a superintendent sitting down thinking, wow, we want to have the lowest performing school in the state. We want to have the lowest performing school system in the state. Uh, instead, it seems to me that what's going on is that uh, public educators have embraced a certain philosophy of education. And out of that philosophy of education has come a string of unintended consequences. Is that a, is that a fair read of your argument? Yes, absolutely. Walk us through a bit of the, the philosophy of education side of things. Like where, where are there some prior assumptions that educators are making that are then worked out in the classroom in a, in a really negative way? Sure. I mean, the, the, the classic thing that I've heard from teachers too many times uh, is the smart kids don't really need you. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the, the lower achieving kids who need you. And I understand where that would where, where they would be coming from. The idea is that hey, these smart kids have enough support in their life. You need to to, to put your your eyes and your attention over here. Um, I think that over and over again, we are expecting education to do the impossible. And it's not that education shouldn't try to do these things and be passionate about it, but we're building systems around the expectation that education solves problems it can't solve. Mm. And in the process, we're bastardizing the whole system. So this is something that I call the cost of utopian delusions uh, in my book. And, and we see it over and over again. One of the examples I give in my book is anti-bullyism. It's a, something that most people, it's, it's the least criticized movement in America, right? <laughs> you can't, you can't argue against like, well, sure, you know, if, you, if you're, if you're anti-anti-bullyism, you're, what are you pro-bully? But what the anti-bullyism movement has done, the anti-bullyism uh, sprang up following the Columbine shooting in the, in the late nineties. Um, and, and what that, that movement has done has been in effect to increase student fragility to create a, an environment where students are far more fragile to basic uh, student interactions, where they're far more dependent on teachers 
if you look at psychologists, particularly Izzy Kalman, Izzy Kalman has done a, a lot of great work on this. The situation that, that comes out of that is what's called triangulation. So, you know, student uh, goes to teacher uh, and tells the teacher, uh, and the teacher then is, it has to tell, you know, who's a victim and who's an oppressor. And so that might be an oversimplification, but basically we create this system uh, this or this scenario where the student is uh, feeling more legitimized uh, and one student is, is then angry, okay? And so the angry student is going to give less, less effort long-term and, and is going to feel, you know, mischaracterized. And then the, the victim student is going to continue to go to the teacher and never learn to solve problems themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of evidence to show basically that anti-bullyism has not helped in any way, shape, or form. It's the sort of thing we do all the time. We try to convince the world that our authorities should be solving problems that they're not capable of solving, that are impossible to solve in a certain realm, that require personal responsibility and personal effort. And we're in the process, we're disincentivizing the maturity and the ground level support that is needed. Okay, so if you want to support lower achieving students, there's a billion ways we could do it. Most of it's going to start uh, with communities, with mentorships, with a lot of outside the classroom things going on. Uh, If a student gets to the high school and they can't multiply, well, putting them in algebra is doing the class no good, is doing them no good, right? And so this is a really big problem. So we have to contend with that. At this point in their life, multi, you know, they, if they can't multiply, math is not going to serve them in their future. Anyone with any modicum of common sense can see that. So it, it sounds well and good to say, don't give up on the kid, you know, X, Y, Z. It's not giving up on a kid to say, hey, would you like a vocational track? Would, w- 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 let's talk about what some other options. Let's open up some other options. Rather than lowering the, the standard of the entire class, to bring the student, the teacher's attention, the majority of the teacher's attention to the students who don't need to learn algebra, if that makes sense. Oh, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it puts what I think people assume should, what seems reflexively to be the purpose of a school, which is the subjects that students are learning, it seems to put those back at the center. And it says, okay, mm-hmm. the goal is to teach English, uh, math, science, foreign language, Uh, history classes, whatever the core class requirements are to teach those to a really high degree. And then uh, if a curriculum is arranged correctly, it should be scaffolded to in such a way that students are building the skills and the knowledge that the next level draws upon. But then I think your, your approach sounds like a very realistic approach to say, okay, we're, if we do actually put those in the proper orientation, then not every student is going to fit that proper orientation. And we need to get away from saying the implicit, well, therefore, either we need to lower the system or we need to just tell students like somehow a a sort of a shaming message of you're not good enough because you can't do algebra, which no one wants to say. But I think the system implies if we uh, if we've left, there's only one avenue and you're bad at it, but you're going to go down that avenue anyway. But I I really like I'm really intrigued by this idea of like, okay, well, what if we open up this vocational direction and say, okay, you know what, honestly, by the time 
I think England does this at age 15. I'll say uh, most of continental Europe does something similar by age 16, where you sort of are clearly on an academic track or you're on a vocational track. And and they do work themselves out in different economic levels in terms of like career earnings potential and so on. But it strikes me as something that could be very beneficial to students to say, at this point, you should have learned these amount of concepts and you haven't. We need to make a change. And that, that sounds like a very realistic approach to me. And I think that you could offer remediation for students that were passionate about, no, I want to keep up. I want to, to bridge the gap. I don't think it has to be fixed. I don't think anything has to be fixed. I believe in, in, in allowing schools to meet the needs where they are rather than trying to standardize a system mm-hmm. you know, across an entire state level and, and, and pretend that everything is the same everywhere. I think there's a lot of creative ways to meet the needs at the ground level, if we're honest. And that's the big thing that is so frustrating when you look at education is there's a culture where you're not allowed to say what everyone is thinking. Um, and, and everyone's aware that we're not meeting these needs. We're, we're teaching things and, 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 and does it even matter sometimes? Do the, you know, we're not doing it in a way where the kids care. We're checking boxes. This is an amazing opportunity we have to get kids eight hours a day from the time they're five to the time they're 18. You look around the country, there's a lot of issues going on right now. We're wasting this giant opportunity over and over and over again. What education should be in my eyes is an authority in human development who can stand up, who can notice the trends in society that are, that are not serving us, all right, and can stand up and point families and kids in the right direction that can help them in their lives. Um, and if we, if we don't do that in the 13 years we have, that's a giant wasted opportunity. When we're badgering a kid because he hasn't passed his, his algebra star his freshman year, uh, and, and all of our attention, and we're taking him out of classes so he can do remediation, we're doing all these things, it's so clearly not, not what's in the kid's best interest, the teacher's best interest or the school's best interest, but it's where so much of our time is going. And that's frustrating. <laughs> so walk us through kind of an, uh, an alternative, if you would. I mean, like, what would it look like if instead of, so if instead of schools focusing a, an immense amount of energy on the lowest performing student, instead of schools sort of, I think you talked about uh, in your article about uh, mainstreaming students with disabilities in uh, kind of regular student classes, if instead of that, what would it look like for a school to uh, prioritize uh, setting the bar high? What would what cast a vision for us for a moment? What would that look like? The framing that I like the best is Daniel Schmachtenberger's. He's a brilliant mathematician, among many other things. He talks about what schools need to be doing for the 21st century. And I like this framing. We have to be developing students' first, second, and third-person epistemics. So first and second person epistemics that are basically entirely overlooked by every school in the country. And they're really important for, for the modern world. If you look at the rates of addiction, the r- rates of uh, the mental health disorders that are, that are going, you know, that, are, that have been skyrocketing since the, the mid, mid 2000s. If, if you look at uh, obesity, it's quadrupled in, in teens uh, since 1980. This is basic life maintenance, first person epistemics. This is self mastery. This is habit formation. This is study skills. This is how to uh, delay gratification. 
This is you understanding yourself, your own biases, how they uh, impact your opinion. Uh, we don't do any work teaching students uh, cognitive biases. Uh, student, you know, to, we don't do much about metacognition. Students don't understand their own mind and what's driving them. And, uh, and so I find that fascinating that we overlook that. Second person epistemics are then how do I relate to people? So, you know, kind of the uh, how to win friends and influence people, but more than that, to understand the, the, the human relational psychology, to understand that we are emotional creatures at, at base level. I don't know if you're familiar with the elephant rider path metaphor, but uh, it's basically that you, we're, we're, we're driven, behavior change is driven by three things. Oh, mm -hmm. The, the uh, elephant being our emotion, very powerful, all right? The rider on the elephant, our logical mind, which tries to steer this powerful beast. And then the environment around us being the path. Um, and you're constantly having to manipulate all those things. Well, the elephant is way stronger than most people recognize. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so in our interpersonal relationships, we have to be taught this and we have to learn to understand where people's emotions are leading them, what they're bringing to the table that might be skewing their, you know, skewing their uh, opinion in a certain direction and, and how to honor that, how to, how to frame an argument to someone in a way that they will be more receptive. Um, our students know nothing about that. This, you know, this is, I guess this is rhetoric, which is Jay Heinrichs has written a great book on rhetoric called uh, Thank You for Arguing that I think should be required by every school. It's phenomenal. But yeah, I mean, teaching rhetoric is, it, it, you have to do it in my opinion. Th th that is the life skill. And then the third person epistemic, epistemics then is, is sense making, is truth finding. How do you find base level truth? So this is philosophy of science. This is basic logic. These are the most important skills that we should be building to and, and, and really hitting, I think, uh, by, by middle school. How do we determine truth? In a world of information overload, where you can find a media source to tell you anything you want, this is what's really, really, really missing is we don't have very good training in, in, in distilling what is true from what is not true and being able to hold things up. Uh, we, can't, we can't debate or, 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 or critique or expect our, our citizens to critique a presidential election because they don't know what a straw man argue, argument is. They don't know what an ad, ad, hominis, ad hominem fallacy is. These are big things that, 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 that are infecting our society at large. Um, and so I don't think it, you know, I'm a, I'm a history guy. And I also think that students need, need to know their history because it helps them put everything in context. You can't really teach anything. It, it, it really doesn't matter what you teach if you can't make sense of it or, 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 or see where there might be someone's bias that's leading you one way or another way. And you, and you can't parse these things out. So those are, uh, th those are first, second and third person epistemics need to be taught much better. First and second person epistemics are basically over overlooked. Third person epistemics, I imagine at Thales Academy are handled really well, uh, but in, in modern public education, they're basically entirely overlooked. I wonder if you've, you, you've heard of uh, Dorothy Sayers' Lost Tools of Learning. That oh, is a, I know it well. That is, that is third person epistemics, and that is, in a nutshell, and that is where I think most schools should focus the majority of their attention. I would just add the first and second person levels a little bit more. I think we handle those too, in the sense we use different language for them. But I mean, I think your first person epistemic sound a lot like classical virtue training and like the, the just the basic arguments of like, this is why 
even though the ancients didn't know nearly as much as we do about neurobiology or chemistry or physics, um, they, they did understand that there's a, there are a lot of ways that people can go wrong in how they live their lives. And the biggest of those is, uh, is instant gratification versus delayed gratification. So a lot of the virtues are really ways of habitually training children to postpone the fulfillment of certain desires. And, and various ethical thinkers get into, they don't really like to necessarily call uh, things wrong per se, but they're, they're certainly foolish in a lot of ways. And, and we have a uh, system of 15 outcomes that we're kind of always trying to bring things back to, but we're, our goal is to help students see uh, the importance of uh, pursuing a life of integrity, the role of critical thinking in that, uh, truth-seeking as a never-ending process, the necessity of cooperating together as a team with other people that you're around, and kind of embracing a, a general picture of kind of our version of what virtues uh, virtues have always been about. Uh, that, And I, I don't know how you teach the sort of relational connections except for just kind of like walking students through all the different conflicts that they create amongst themselves across a given set of educational years. But that's certainly something we're always attentive to. First of all, sign me up. It sound, I mean, <laughs> your virtue training, you're right on there. Maybe pin for in just a second, the uh, lack of uh, ability to identify values, clarify values, mm -hmm. stand for values. Uh, the, the, the trepidation we have about being really clear about values in modern society, mm -hmm. uh, the moral relativism that has taken hold is a giant part of the problem. It's a giant part of the mental health problem. But to, to get to the second person epistemics and how you do that, the everyone should read, <laughs> and, and maybe not, not students, it might be a little above their level, I don't know, at least excerpts maybe would be good for them. But The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, I think is oh. brilliant. And... Uh, <laughs> And so that is, at minimum, students have to learn and understand these un, these relational the, the relational psychology, uh, and, and what is driving the mind when they don't understand the mind when they believe that people should think rationally when they think everyone's stupid who doesn't think like them it's a sign of a very immature mind that unfortunately goes on in, into adulthood for far too many people. We have to understand and grow to understand how our opinions are formed and what biases people bring, bring to the table uh, and how to relate. And, and so between The Righteous Mind and, and uh, Thank You for Arguing, those two books, that, that can, can kind of cover uh, second-person epistemics. But it's really rhetoric, you know, framing arguments and, and, and better communication skills. Not communication in the sense of, you know, what, what the communications major has turned into at the college level, but like a, a really high level look at, at communications is kind of my thought. Excellent. Well, let's bring this back to uh, a couple other pieces. I'm keeping on our time. I want to make sure we uh, get a couple other things in before we have to wrap this up. Um, let's go back to special education. Um, as you mentioned incentives earlier, uh, is there an incentive that, or is there a particular incentive force that drives the way schools handle special education? And does that come into the process of setting a low bar for classes? I don't know how much of special education is, it, 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 it is driven by incentives. I can't really speak to that, uh, given that I'm not, I'm not an administrator and I'm not seeing what, what they are. I do 
I do know that there are a ton of incentives draw, drawing attention. You know, I've already mentioned the the, the discipline uh, and, and how funding is released based on discipline for special education. So uh, I, the, the 504 and IEPs, these are legal documents for listeners who don't understand. So a teacher can come into a will come into a classroom and say they have 25 students. I have a friend this year who has who has a class with about 25. He has uh, 14 combination. Yeah, he has 14 either 504 or IEP students. So each one of these 504s or IEPs, uh, each one of these will demand a, either accommodations or modifications. Uh, accommodations might be preferential seating, checks for understanding, extended time, uh, they might have to, so, you know, they might have to modify tests, reduce questions, give notes to the student rather than making the student take their own notes. So a teacher can come to a classroom and have, you know, typically it's not 14, but they might have eight students that are, the, that are requiring these things. And their accommodations are all sorts of, of uh, uh, different levels, right? So they're having to, they're having to adjust uh, all you know, eight different assignments, and then they have six other classes, and they're trying to remember from class to class. So it creates this this overwhelm situation where it's like you know where a teacher might come to the conclusion, well, shoot, all the, all these students need this, this, and this. Well, everyone's just going to get a printout of the notes, and before long, over the course of years, enough teachers do that that students that students who don't have any accommodations come to regular level classes expecting that because it's all that's ever been asked for them. So it's a it kind of a, 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 over time, we, we get this, this slowly uh, devolving standards. That, that is kind of how the incentives work their way through the system. So one teacher doing what was, was just emailed out that they had to do, told a student they were tardy. Uh, this is last week. And then they got an email from the parent because that student <laughs> had an accommodation that said, do not call my student out. This embarrasses them. And that was written into a legal document. Oh, look so, so, so it becomes this impossible. And these are the things that happen to yeah. teachers every day. And it, comes, it becomes this impossible situation. We had a staff training a couple of years ago, and, and there was a, uh, a, 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 a model of a 504 that we used. Uh, the student's name was blocked out, so we couldn't see who it was, but it was a real 504. The accommodation on it was that the student can, at all times during lessons, have earphones in. What? This was on a legal document. And it's, I don't know, and, and you know, they're, they're not listening to classical music. They're listening to Drake or something. Right, it's, right. There's, there's no, no intelligent person in the world who would make the argument that listening to Drake is going to help them learn. But you know, so, so we're, we're seeing these situations too often. <laughs> oh, I just, I can't imagine. I, I, I've been blessed to not teach in that sort of setting. The school that I've, I'm, I'm at has emphasized from day one that we don't make accommodations. We don't do 504s. We don't do IEPs, which we can do because we're private. Mm -hmm. uh, but that just sounds like such a difficult situation for teachers to be in. Uh, How do y'all accommodate um, and, and, here, and here's the thing that, that I think is really important for people to understand. I love that. Uh, I, love, I love that your school has, has decided to do that. And because you're educators who care, all right, and you're doing things on the, on the local level without a ton of, of, of outside right. input, constantly crowding your brains, you do accommodate in your own way. 
you, mm-hmm. you you are going to be common sense educators yep. to meet the needs of your students. So I'm curious, like, what's that look no, like? No, that's that's a great question. It's it's one that when parents ask for an accommodation, I tend to have a, a freaking out is a bit bit dramatic, but I'll tend to kind of very clearly say we don't do accommodations. I don't want to think that we'll accept their IEPs or whatever. But we do exactly, you're exactly right. What we do is basically our teachers know their students and they do what they can within the confines of their classroom without losing sight of what's necessary for the good of the whole. So uh, we have, especially in the, the beginning, towards the beginning of the year, we might have a lot of shuffling of seating charts because teachers don't know their students initially. As they get to know their students, they realize, wow, you know, John does not talk out of turn very much when he's not sitting around Tim and Bill. So let's put John on the one side of the classroom. We'll put Tim and Bill two rows back. And those kinds of shuffles become key. We have a school-wide behavior system that uh, where our expectations are very clear. We have a school-wide uh, discipline policy where when students have behavior infractions, It starts them on this kind of trajectory of a lunch detention, a long lunch detention, a three lunch detentions, and a visit to the principal. Uh, And at the visit to the principal level, there's also contact with parents. And if we keep going down that route, eventually we're looking at suspension and expulsion. So uh, the short answer is that we don't accommodate, but the longer answer is that each teacher has the autonomy in the classroom to make arrangements that seem to benefit the students. And then as administrators, we'll, we're talking with parents, if they have a reasonable request uh, or want to make a reasonable experiment, like we can, we can do that. Sure. Uh, we, can, we can try that out and then we can evaluate it and we can pivot and say, mm, turns out uh, this student was actually not helped by sitting in the back row with his friends. That was a bad idea. Let's change that. And we can sure. do something different. And uh, so the other piece that I would say for us at least is key is that and this is one benefit we have as a private school that public schools don't have access to. Private school, we, we can control our admissions a little bit differently, where uh, we do communicate throughout the admissions process that every student is expected to meet our behavior expectations, and every student is expected to study all of the classes, and you have to pass every core class in order to graduate. So we sort of have this ethos of recognizing we're all in this together and everybody's got to meet the standards and, and teachers are working with students to help them get there if they're not quite there yet. Sure. So sure. That, that's what we do. Yeah. It, 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 it's organic. It sounds like yeah. um, it, 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 this reminds me of something I think is, is worth noting and that my educational philosophy, my life, life philosophy is very much built in the idea that regardless of what, what is holding you back at the end of the day, but you are going to graduate and you should be capable of adulthood at 18. I know we've lost that in society, but that, that is, that is our goal is to make you capable of standing on your own feet to, to make you capable of, 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 of figuring out how to adapt to your own needs. You're going to have limitations. You're going to have strengths and, and, and to, to, to go with those. Uh, and that's part of becoming an adult. Uh, so, you know, in, in my book, I, I don't, again, I don't have the exact statistic, but I think it is, they did a study of, of Britain's millionaires. Uh, this is early 2000s. 
and uh, of all the millionaires in Britain and found that over 50%, no, 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 it was 40%. It was 40% of British billionaires were dyslexic. That's four times the national average of, of millionaires, of self-made millionaires were, were dyslexic. And uh, the, the way I frame this in the book is, is you know, so you could, as a parent, uh, you know, just in sort of the same fashion that crazy baseball parents nowadays are hoping their sons are going to be left-handers. You could be hoping your son is a, is a dyslexic student because it's more likely to make him a millionaire if you framed it correctly. But, but obviously, there's nothing about dyslexia that is making their students more likely to be millionaires. What, what dyslexia is actually doing is setting up a bouquet of challenges that, that await a student that they are forced to overcome creatively, that if they rise to that occasion, if they change their lens from that of a victim to one of someone who is, is going to be better because of their obstacles, who is going to find different, be prompted to, to different strengths, be prompted to figure things out that other people aren't being prompted to, if they shift the lens in, in that proportion, well then yes, Having a few more adversities could be a great advantage in your life. Again, I'm blanking, but it's, it's the Seneca quote. You've gone through life without an opponent. Uh, no one can, can uh, I pity you because, uh, because you've had no adversity, basically. You've gone through life without an opponent. No one can know what you're capable of, not even you. And that is, is so baked into my, my, my worldview is uh, you have got to have, you've got to give people obstacles or they're not going, you know, that's where life happens. In the logic class I used to teach, there was a uh, passage from uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Church of Rome, where uh, they took one of his uh, lines and kind of worked it out as a set of concentric circles, where the Apostle wrote that uh, uh, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces patience, patience produces hope. Uh, there might have been three or four more terms in there, but I think he was, uh, I always remember the diagram where just like was, uh, you've got, so if you have suffering, then your next level in is endurance, which then takes you here, takes you here. And I think he was on to something that's really key for all human beings that it really is those hardship moments. It's, it's going through those moments of difficulty, not trying to get out of it or ask everyone to somehow make life easy. But it's those hardship moments that really do form us as people and they help reveal where our character is and they help push us to where we could be. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, anyone looking back, the best teacher probably challenged them. Most formative moments, you know. You know. So I go through in, in the book, I, I kind of outline a little bit. I, I had a, a, a form of OCD, um, you know, not just kind of the offhand like, oh, uh, you know. He has a little OCD. No, like, you know, I had actually a, a really bad form of OCD called Pure O in college. It's the most, I've said this to people a billion times, it is the most important thing that ever happened to me. It's the mm. best thing that ever happened to me. I, I shudder to think of who I would be if that had not happened and how, how much more simplistic my worldview would be, how much less passionate I would be uh, potentially. I mean, these things tend to unlock our greatest strengths and in uh, our greatest energies and in, in, in potentialities, if we'll let them. And, and that is to get back to the culture we've created in modern education that, that is frustrating to me. Too often, we're just we're bulldozing the path, you know, you know, it's, it's bulldozer parents that have taken over the schools. <laughs> so, uh, 
Shane, I think you've given us kind of a, a great picture. Uh, and uh, on, on the optimistic curmudgeon, we're always looking for where's the, the hope for the problems that we see. Because obviously, we live in a world of problems, and we don't want to be Pollyanna-ish and ignore those problems. But we also have the, the hope that we can make, we can arrange things a little bit differently. We can make things a little bit better than they, they have to be. I think you've shown us some ways that schools can focus on academics and put those first and require students to learn things to a high degree. But to get there requires self-control, responsibility, virtue, and realism. All of that is key, uh, as is an attention to the incentives and what, are, what incentives are driving schools. I think it's a really important thing to consider, not just what our teachers doing and what our principals doing, but also what our policymakers doing and what goals are policymakers handing to schools to say, well, if you do this, we'll increase your funding by 10%. But if you fail to do this, we're going to decrease your funding by 8%. Those kind of incentives become really significant. I've heard, we haven't talked much about this, but I've heard throughout your comments kind of a, a longing for a more of a return to local school control. Is that is that also part of your, your vision? Yeah, I, I believe firmly that if you if you devolve responsibility to the school level and, and yet you have broadly a very high expectation, then, that, then, then schools will, will meet that expectation. You know, I've seen over and over again, uh, five high school district, uh, we have a great principal. He's just beat down with, with district meetings, different, dis, district initiative here, district initiative here. And, and it makes it, I can't imagine being a principal in, in, in public schools today, particularly large districts, you have so much less capacity to, to, to make your school what you want to make it, mm. culture-wise, to be in your school, to be present with your students, to know them, to be present with your teachers, to know them, to push them, to, 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 to be able to, to, to form the organic relationships necessary. You have so much less capacity to do that because you're pulled by so many of these ridiculous outside forces that might sound good on paper or, or sound good in a meeting room, but they have no recognition for what, what it is to actually be teaching. So yeah, I, and I'm a big believer in the, the anthropological uh, lens too. So the, the Dunbar number, I'm a big believer in. I don't know if you're familiar. Uh, Rob, Robin Dunbar is an anthropologist who studied the neocortex, which is the uh, part of the brain uh, basic, that is responsible for relationships. And uh, based on the size of a neocortex of, of uh, uh, certain primates and how big their troops were, and then extrapolating that to the human neocortex, uh, made the conclusion that human brains are evolved to have hundred to hold about 150 relationships uh, and to do that well. And once you get over 150 relationships, uh, <laughs> everything breaks down. I think that there are a lot of good cultural mechanisms that have that have developed to make it so human societies can in an organic way handle more than 150 relationships uh, religion being one uh, value systems being other you know, uh, you know to, to to have a school who, who ascribes to stoic philosophy or a classical lens okay that's that in itself allows you to go above 150 but when you get too big you take the responsibility and you put it external to the to the people that are on the ground level. I think it always breaks down. There's a lot to that. I think that's in, that's, that's I want to learn more about that Dunbar number, but I think you're definitely right about the the larger you get as an institution, the more difficult it is for it all to kind of hold together, and the more you need 
I know our, our school has found a lot of value in sort of a decentralized approach where uh, campus administrators frequently talk to each other and meet, but each campus is sort of autonomous. It works for us in that we have administrators who understand a common set of policies and a common set of goals. But then we're looking at the application of those policies and goals becomes a bit unique. It's driven by the administrator's personality, the students, the parents, the teachers, all of that is a different set of circumstances from campus to campus. And that, that, ma- that does matter. I think if you talk to any teacher, they'll tell you that every class they've ever had uh, is a completely different organism, different behaviors. You know, there, there, there's different energies. There's, there's just all these, the personalities blend together in a different way. And you couldn't have predicted it. You can't quantify this stuff. You can't say, well, you know, we've been measuring these students and we know they're going to, you know, we're, you know, it's going to be this energy level. It's going to be this creativity. Level. You, know, you can't do that. They're, they're their own organisms. And when you try to, it's, it's, it's just comical. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be comical. <laughs> Shane, where can people find and follow your work online? Uh, the best way is probably uh, to go to trottershane.com. Um, so trottershane.com. Uh, you can find my, you know, my Twitter. So, you know, so I'll tweet articles there and, you know, links to, to my blog there and everything else. And, uh, and I will also say that uh, my book publishes on November 9th. So, uh, yeah, if you jump on the newsletter, I'll, I'll uh, be sending deals, et cetera. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, Shane, thank you so much for coming on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation this morning. Thank you, Josh. It's been awesome. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Shane Trotter, author of Setting the Bar, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Era of Distraction, Dependency, and Entitlement. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, We're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful.